Our reading this morning is Mark 6. We're going to start at verse 1 to verse 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and mother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. God, reveal your word to us this morning. Good morning. I wrote a sermon this week, uh, and I was in the garden quite a bit. Uh, through my head as I'm, as I'm raking and, and uh, digging, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Just kept singing that song as we travel this sod. Uh, and, it's, and, and I love welcoming new members um, because of that. It's, it's a family thing. We're we're growing as a family. It's beautiful. Um, God's Word is, is amazing. Uh, I wrote this sermon uh, earlier this week, and today, as I was reading through it, God taught me something new from my own words. Uh, it is it's fun. It's really fun. And I get to come up here and... Uh, share a little bit about what I learned this week. Um, I wish I could tell you so much more. There's things that I just didn't have time to include. Uh, here's why I'm happy. This morning we're talking about rejection. We are continuing in Mark, but in contrast to the last few chapters, and, and in fact the bulk of the Gospel of Mark to this point, this chapter begins with a trial, a struggle, Jesus comes home and is dismissed. He does good. He speaks good. He comes for goodness' sake, but he's met with hostility. James 1 starts like this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Don't you want to lack in nothing? I do. But the path according to Scripture is very clear. The path to lacking in nothing is paved with struggle. God-ordained, sanctifying trials of various kinds. But it goes on, if you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. 
But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And this is as much doubt, can can our God do it, or can the God do it, as it is, is God good? Doubt comes in both flavors. Will he, will he care for me? To know God is able, but to doubt if he will care for you, that's double-mindedness. Now, this was written by James, James the just, James the brother of Jesus. The very same James that the people of Nazareth listed when deriding Jesus. Mark 6.3, is not this Jesus, the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? This little passage that we read about doubt, written by James, the brother of Jesus, the one who rejected Jesus in chapter 3. And a crowd was sitting with him, that's Jesus, and they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you, for they thought he was out of his mind. And Jesus asked them, who are my mother and brothers? This little part that we began with is written by the same James, James the brother of Jesus, in case you just joined us, who, by the writing of the book of Acts, has become one of the primary leaders of the church in Jerusalem. All this to say that some very amazing things must have happened to James. Sometime between Jesus' return to Nazareth, today's passage, and James' ascendancy to the leadership of the first Christian church. And this begs the question, when James wrote about faith and doubt, how much do you think he was reminded of his own days of doubt? Verse 7, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James must have stood back and marveled at God's goodness to him. To be so far from God and then to be made useful in his kingdom. Do you ever look back and marvel at God's goodness to you? Contrasting the time when you doubted versus the time when you believed. From our passage today, Mark 6, verses 1 and 2. And he went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. Now just in case you thought it was going to be an easy ride for Jesus as we walked through the Gospel of Mark, he throws us this story. More accurately, just in case Jesus' disciples thought it was going to be an easy ride, 
Jesus decides to take them to his hometown. And you can bet that at least some of them were expecting fanfare and palm branches if they were headed to Jesus' own people. But that's not the case. And in fact, this incident in Nazareth foreshadows so much more, doesn't it? He's not just rejected in his hometown. He's rejected by his nation, by his race. Mark actually doesn't tell us the town's name in this passage. For that, you have to go back to the first chapter, Mark chapter 1, verses 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Nazareth of Galilee. Look for Nazareth anywhere in the Old Testament and you won't find it. Look for it in any other Jewish writings before Christ and it's stunningly absent. It's not in the Apocrypha. It's not in the rabbinic literature. It's just not there. Which makes it all the more funny when Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel into his service. John chapter 146 And Nathanael says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? To which Jesus says, there's a true son of Israel. Can anything good come out of that place? This makes me replace something else in my head. When Joseph and Mary are told by an angel that King Herod has died and that they can now return back to Israel, Joseph chooses to settle down in Nazareth probably purely because of how remote it is, how off the radar it is. Here's an amazing thing. As a town, it was so small that there was only one Jesus from Nazareth. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua, which was and still is one of the most common boys' names ever. It's as if to say Nazareth was so small that there was only ever one Joshua in its history. Imagine that. By the way, Joshua gets translated into Jesus because the Greeks have no sh sound in their vocabulary, in case you wanted to know. And that's how we get the name Jesus of Nazareth. Verses 2 and 3. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and, his, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And the townies fire off a barrage of questions, five of them actually, each one knocking Jesus down a little more than the last, seeking to bring him down to a more manageable level, the one they know. Looking back, never once do they deny Jesus' wisdom or his might or his miracles, but they reject him anyway. That's double-mindedness. Sure, he did all that, but so what? 
There's no way he did all that. He can't. He can't be the Christ. In Romans 1, verse 18, Paul says, we all do this. By our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. Throughout this passage, they refer to Jesus as him, or this man. And one commentator says, it's like, it's repeated so often, it's like saying, this fella. Where did this fella get these things? What is this wisdom this fella has? How are such mighty works done by this fella? These questions all point to a supernatural force, something super big. And the resounding answer to each of these is God. He brings God's wisdom. He brings God's power and God's might to bear. It's obvious because Jesus is doing good and not evil. And he's fulfilling prophecy after prophecy from the Old Testament. But they will not grant him an inch. Who does this fella think he is? Verses 3, part A. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? And it's super strange that Jesus is called the son of Mary. Everywhere else... And by common tradition, he'd be called the son of Joseph. It's a guy thing. There's speculation that this is a mockery. They'd call him the son of Mary. Jesus being the illegitimate child, not Joseph's son, but Mary's. However, it's more likely that as Joseph is never mentioned again after Jesus' infancy, that we are to read this as Joseph has died And Jesus, his firstborn, has taken over as the town builder. He's the local handyman, like his dad was. They know him. Verse 3b, he's the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. Look, they say, we know everything there is to know about this guy. We know him and his, his whole family. Now, this list of brothers confirms that Mary and Joseph were steeped in history and love of their country. They were obviously awaiting the fulfillment of things foretold. The name James is the Greek version of Jacob. So Jesus' first brother is named after the father of the 12 tribes, Jacob. And Joseph is the short form of Joseph, named for the guy in the dream coat, the one who rescued his father and brothers from famine and settled them in Egypt. This is a strong nod to the patriarchs of old. And Judas and Simon are significant too. They are the names of heroes from the Maccabean Revolt which took place in between the Old and New Testament times. One scholar says, here's a family very much anticipating the rescue and redemption of the people of Israel. Verse 3c. Are not his sisters here with us? 
And yet this is another statement of familiarity. This is another way of saying, look, we've even married his sisters. They're here with us. And it's familiarity, the familiarity of the whole thing that they just can't look past. Finally, verse 3D, and they took offense at him. A guy named Publius the Syrian, a couple hundred years before Christ, famously said, familiarity breeds contempt. And we've all experienced this to some degree or another. We pigeonhole things and people. We think we know everything that there is to know about a person, about what they're capable of. As a youth pastor for many, many years, I saw hundreds of children grow up and become adults, some growing to staggering heights. One of my little guys became a doctor in Edmonton. But to me, he's the one that I had to defend every time he'd bother the bigger kids so much that they wanted to pound on him. One of my girls finished university and got a job making $200,000 plus working for the premier of the province. I can't say I took offense, but her first job tipped the scales on the first 10 years of mine. Girl was brilliant. Makes perfect sense. Verse 4, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household. And this is a maxim repeated throughout time. Fresh out of seminary, I corrected my mom once on a lighter theological point, and she's a saint of a woman. She's a saint. But she warned me not to get all high and mighty. <laughs> Rightly so. Much knowledge puffs up. A prophet, not without honor except in his hometown. It's notable that this is the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus is called a prophet. One who speaks the words of God. And true to form, he comes like a prophet and is rejected like a prophet. He lives as a prophet and he dies a prophet's death. Mark verse 6, sorry, chapter 6 verse 5, and this is a fascinating statement. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. What does that mean? He could do no mighty work, and then the next phrase, except he healed a few people. What's mightier than healing? Is this a contradiction? No, but it's an amplification showing the tragedy of it all, the sorrow of what took place in his town. Jesus was unable to heal more than just a handful of people, meaning... There were blind in Nazareth who never did see, lame that never walked, dying that were not made well, and oppressed that were never freed. There were sinners who died in their sin. 
His town could have been transformed, made new, revived, but instead it remained spiritually dead. Of this you might also ask, what does it mean that Jesus, the Almighty, the Son of God, could do no mighty work there? This bears a caveat, of course. Jesus could do the miraculous. God can do all things. But what this tells us, far from the health and wealth prosperity gospel, which claims it's our faith that unleashes God's power, like God's hands are tied until we deposit the right amount of belief into the jar to get him moving. No, what this tells us is that Jesus is being true to his character. In the same way that God is all-powerful but is unable to lie, Numbers 23 and Hebrews 6, God is not limited by anything. He's unhindered by any barrier, and yet he can do nothing that contradicts his own character. In other words, Jesus could have healed more but it would have made no difference. One preacher puts it this way, Jesus' miracles were not magic tricks designed to prove how powerful he was, but they were signs of the kingdom to show how his redemptive power operates. His miracles always healed and restored and delivered people in ways that revealed how we are to find him by faith and have our lives transformed by him. Here's the deal. He could not do a deed that would not redeem. And Nazareth wasn't looking for redemption. Jesus could do no miracles because to heal a person without affecting something deeper would contradict his very character and purpose for coming. How could he manifest a miracle without it leading to transformation? Look at it this way. To cast out a demon from a faithless person, one refusing to believe, would still only produce a faithless person. Sure. They're no longer possessed. But what good is that if they are still living in total rebellion to God the King? Jesus could do no mighty works because mighty works would have no eternal consequence there. Remember the word of James. These words that would have turned in James' head again and again. Verse 7, for the faithless person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. People who want healing but do not want a Savior. People who want a helper God but not the Lord of life. This is what's against Jesus' very character. Asking Jesus to dial it back to three. He's the Lord of all creation. He works at 11 all the time. God is not into healing just the body without healing the soul. He's not going to rescue the emotionally lost or physically lost without restoring the soul that's lost. 
Jesus' purpose was not to free Jewish slaves of Rome. He came to free humanity's slavery to sin. It's bigger. When Luke tells this very same story of Jesus coming home, we get to actually hear what Jesus said. Luke tells us that in the synagogue in Nazareth, on one Sabbath, Jesus was handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he opened it, and he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set a liberty, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of the whole synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is not saying the poor will get some much-needed funds, the nearsighted will no longer need glasses, or that he's going to bust some folks out of the local jail. Jesus is saying that God's Holy Spirit is coming in force, that God will make right every single wrong ever committed, that those in his family will lack for nothing, All the riches of heaven will someday be theirs. Jesus is announcing that those with faith will see God. Sermon on the Mount, the pure of heart will see God. No one will be spiritually blind any longer, and we will actually see Almighty God seated seated on His throne in glory. Jesus is proclaiming the end of every tyranny, the end of every temptation, of every evil, of every deceit, and that he will defeat sin and death forever. And the Nazarenes don't want anything of it. Mark 6, verse 6, at this he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the other villages teaching. Now, Jesus is often marveled at. People are often astounded, amazed, awestruck by him. But hear this marvel does not mean belief. Astonishment does not mean faith. While Scripture often says others marvel at him, it only twice says Jesus himself marveled. The first is at the centurion who told Jesus, if you say it, I know it will be done from Matthew 8. And then here, at the refusal of his kindred, his closest to believe that he could be more than just a carpenter. We know what we know. We aren't about to let the evidence change our minds. And Jesus marveled at the sadness of it all, the sickness of mankind's sin. 
You see, apart from the eyes of faith, no one can see Jesus for who He truly is. This is shockingly apparent in this story, but it rings true today. Jesus is just a carpenter from a long time ago, a teacher, a good man. He's certainly not the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth, the only way to salvation. Even in our churches, without the transforming work of God's grace, Jesus is just one good thing among many, a genie, an energy drink, a co-pilot. Scripture tells us in the last days there will be people who have the appearance of godliness from 2 Timothy 3, 5, but deny its power. Jesus takes his disciples to Nazareth, to his hometown, to show them what they are about to face. In the very next story, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles, giving them his very same message. Repent, make change, for the kingdom of God is is at hand. And he gives them his very same abilities for deliverance and for healing. But he tells them, verse 11 of Mark 6, if any place does not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. History tells us that no church, no Christian church was founded in Nazareth until the 4th century A.D., Unbelief took hold and did not leave that town for some three or four hundred years. So Jesus left and shook off the dust of his feet. And it had a profound consequence that lasted centuries. So why do we here at Rose City need to know this story today? Well, it's mostly because you and I carry on Jesus' mission. We carry forward the apostles' undertaking, and we will be almost wholly rejected. John 15, 19 and 20. Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as as its own, because you are not of this world But because you're not of this world, I, but I choose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And we are Christ's ambassadors to this time and to this place. We aren't supposed to just tell everyone about the gospel. We are supposed to live it out loud in front of all. The good news of repentance and Jesus' kingdom is to make us absolutely joyful people, thankful and generous like no one else. We are to live not for ourselves, but with love and truth and hope and help for all. 
We are to proclaim his rule while sitting and walking and eating and working. Every facet of every day should show that we have been redeemed and serve at the pleasure of the Lord. We are to live and to share the good news in season and out when it's convenient and when it's totally awkward, totally hard. Know that the world will reject you, but some won't, so we tell all. And we win just by being faithful, just by saying Jesus saves, just by living that out day to day. James, Jesus' brother, listened. He witnessed Jesus' death and resurrection, and he believed, had faith, ceased doubting. And so did another guy from that list in verse 3. Of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon, Judas is also known by another name. He's called Jude, the writer of the second to last book of the Bible. And he once doubted, but then believed. And he writes, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and in praying to the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. He knows all about doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to show others mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. We are, we are to be prophets in our hometown to take the very word of God and to share it and to live it And it's going to be rejected. But here and there, it might not. Here and there, God will open up ears and eyes, hearts, and it will be accepted. And the fruit will grow. I was working in the dirt all week. 
Genesis calls us dirtlings, earthlings, Adam. Jesus calls us soil. And we're to scatter the seed of truth everywhere we go, all the time. When it's snowing and the ground is covered and hard, when it's raining, when it's windy, when it's beautiful out. And some of those seeds will grow. And the family will grow. I'm going to pray. And the servers will come up and the musicians, worship leaders. And I pray that we would not worry, not doubt, not hold anything back. Father, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, the knowledge that you are for us, that you loved us more than we can show love, more than we can fathom love. Lord, thank you for Christ's death, his sacrifice, his faithfulness. Lord, help us to be sacrificial in all we do, to be faithful to your name, to your word. Help us to live in such a community in such a way that the world sees the difference. Lord, you are worthy of praise. Let that be what we are about. Amen.